Thank you, Jill. Our scripture for this morning is taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And I'm going to be reading from the, uh, the message. Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything, more than just ready to do what needs to be done. As one psalmist puts it, he throws caution to the winds, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can then give away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. Carrying out this social relief work involves far more than helping meet the bare needs of poor Christians. It also produces abundant and bountiful thanksgivings to God. This relief offering is a prod to live at your very best, showing your gratitude to God by being openly obedient to the plain meaning of the message of Christ. You show your gratitude through your generous offerings to your needy brothers and sisters, and really toward everyone. Meanwhile, moved by the extravagance of God in your lives, they'll respond by praying for you in passionate intercession for whatever you need. Thank God for this gift, His gift. No language can praise it enough. This is God's Word to us. Thank you, Don, and good morning, everyone. Welcome. The video that you just saw refers back to a meeting that we had here uh, at Bethany in August with our church council. And uh, of my 20 years of ministry here at Bethany, it was one of the most memorable experiences uh, that I've ever had because I can still remember there's 11 on the council or so, and we were just scattered throughout this building, if you could picture it, in silence, praying, because due to permit delays uh, and the construction environment in Seattle, the cost kept going up on the building. And we realized that uh, though we'd raised $4 million, now we were still going to be substantially short. And we had to decide, do we continue or do we not continue? And we really didn't know. We got together in here and we prayed. And God had spoken to each of us uniquely, but as Jill shared when we came together, we knew that God wanted us to continue. And uh, it was a moving confirmation. And uh, so we have the privilege together now of continuing to participate in the story of hope that God wants to write through us as a, as a community. And this morning, as we talk about building faith, we're talking about building faith through the spiritual discipline of generosity. Please join me. We'll pray together before we look at the scripture. Father, thanks so much uh, that you are our shepherd and guide. Thank you that your church is bigger than any local congregation, bigger than any denomination, bigger than any particular community. 
Thank you that your grace is infinite, that your generosity to us knows no end. I pray that we now would be taught by your Holy Spirit and equipped to represent your heart well in our lives, Father, both individually and collectively. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I was sick this week with the flu, and I had a chance to reread a little book that I read years ago entitled The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. It's a book really written to writers, but it applies to all of us because he talks about the dissonance between the life we're living and the life that many of us feel we're called to live, if that makes sense. I have a life, and I have a life to which I'm called. So, so this is what he says, and I'm quoting now. Most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands resistance. Have you ever brought home a treadmill and let it gather dust in the attic? Let's just take a survey. How many have unused exercise equipment sitting around your house? Raise your hands. A few honest people in the room... The rest in shame, not saying anything. Have you ever begun and then uh, let go of a meditation practice? Have you ever bailed out on a call to embark upon a discipline of prayer or dedicate yourself to a humanitarian calling or commit your life to the service of others? Have you ever wanted to be a mother, a doctor, an advocate for the weak and helpless, to run for office, crusade for the uh, planet, campaign for world peace, preserve the environment? Late at night, have you experienced a vision of the person you might become, the work you know you're called to do, and yet you don't do it? Are you a writer who doesn't write, a painter who doesn't paint, an entrepreneur who never starts a venture? If so, then you know what resistance is, and I'd venture to say that all of us in the room know what resistance is, because there's a dissonance between where we're at and where we'd like to be. I know. Uh, I started writing a book when I was on sabbatical two years ago. I was going to write a book and still intend to write a book about my sabbatical, uh, uh, hike through the Alps. And so I did the hike and then I had three weeks devoted to writing and I, I was two-thirds done with the book. That was two years ago. And now in that subsequent two years, I'm two-thirds done with the book. <laughs> and I would say to people, oh, you know, I'm too busy. Well, I have an app on my phone. I've skied 400,000 vertical feet this year. I've watched seasons 8, 9, and 10 of Frasier reruns. <laughs> but I don't have enough time to write. That's resistance. And the reality is all of us face times in our lives when there's this gap between who we know we're called to be and the life we're actually living, right? That's true for all of us. There's a classic example in the Bible. It's found in the book of Haggai. Israel has returned from the Babylonian captivity, of which we heard about last week, and they decide they're going to rebuild the temple. <clears throat> so they lay the foundation. And after they lay the foundation, resistance sets in because uh, a group of people come and they go to the king and they say, man, if we allow this temple to be rebuilt, there's going to be an insurrection. Israel's going to come. They're going to overthrow the Persian Empire. Uh, you can't trust these people. Put a stop work order on the temple. And so they do. They put a stop work order on the temple. The king does. And then uh, the, stop work, the stop work order kind of uh, disintegrates, and they're actually free to rebuild, but they don't. 
Because what's happened is they've lost the vision and they've gone on with a smaller, more personal life rather than continuing on in the story of hope that God wants to write through them. Does this make sense? And so Haggai comes along and he says, why is it that you're saying the time has not yet come to build the temple of the Lord? I mean, why are you saying that? And he has this vision, Haggai, to rebuild the temple. And here's their response. Oh, Haggai, glad you're here. Absolutely. Rebuild the temple. We want to do it. It's on our list. It's a priority. It's just not number one priority. In fact, we, we fully intend to rebuild as soon as we refinance, finish paneling our own living rooms, upgrade our refrigerator, get a new car, pay off our school loans, find a publisher. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll, we'll do it as soon as. And, and then what's fascinating is Haggai responds. They're relieved of the burden of rebuilding, right? Because in their minds, they're going to do it, just not now. <laughs> but their lives become this exhausting story of scarcity. So that Haggai says, Haggai chapter 1, verse 6, consider your ways. In other words, Haggai says, oh, you say that as soon as you have enough, you'll enter into God's story and uh, align your life with God's priorities. You say you will, take a look at your life, let's take a temperature, right? And this is what I read when I quote Haggai 1.6. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. You earn, but you earn wages and put them into a purse with holes. In other words, there's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough energy. There's not enough. And Haggai is here to say to them then and to us now, Hello, this is not a resource issue, this is a faith issue. Not a resource issue, a faith issue. Believing that they didn't have enough to practice generosity, uh, they built a wall around their lives and began to protect their assets, thinking that as soon as they had enough assets to take care of themselves, then they could enter into God's story. And Haggai says it doesn't work that way. Building faith always leads us to lives of generosity, investing the time, gifts, and energy that we do have in ways that will bless and serve the world and finding that as we give, we receive. That's the way God works. So Haggai said it, Moses said it, Jesus said it. In the text this morning, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul says it. And this is what they all say. If I'm going to deal with resistance and live a life that is aligned with my calling, it will be because I follow Christ in living a life of radical generosity, in investing even when I don't feel like it, in investing even when I don't feel like I have enough, using all the gifts we've been given in order to bless and serve our world. And so the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which Don uh, read for us this morning, is very interesting. Paul is collecting an offering for a church in Jerusalem, okay? And the church in Jerusalem needs an offering because there's A, a famine, and B, a persecution. And so they're short on resources. So what Paul has done is he's gone to the Galatians to collect from them and the Corinthians to collect from them. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of ecumenism as well. We have a value here, remember, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. The Galatians, too legalistic, right? 
They're judging people for the movies that they go to, for what they drink at their dinner table, for smoking cigarettes, and, and for being Republicans or Democrats or whatever it is. That, you know, they've, they've got this list. Christians do this. That's Galatia. The Corinthians are drunk at the communion table, suing each other, sleeping around. It's too much liberty, right? And, and, and Jerusalem is somewhere in the happy middle. It's John, the, the John Kasich of politics, okay? <laughs> So, so, so what, Paul, what Paul does is he, he collects from the Galatians and the Corinthians, you know, the far left and the far right to give to Jerusalem. Because he, but this is what he says. It's all in Christ. It's all in Christ. And it is all in Christ. So it's a beautiful offering. And, and uh, he's encouraging people toward generosity. And in this particular letter to the Corinthians, he's encouraging the Corinthians toward generosity. And the punchline is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 10 and 11. And so you didn't need to turn there right now, but I'll read it for you. He says, look, as we give, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In other words, as you give, you will be enriched. So, so um, this becomes critical. He's reminding us here of a strongly counterintuitive Reality. And this is the counterintuitive reality. As we participate fully in the story of hope that God desires to write through our lives, by generously investing time and money in what God is doing, the result is always the same. Our hearts will overflow with gratitude and joy, and this resistance will melt, and we'll begin to live more fully the life for which we're created. But if I'm going to live a life of generosity, I have to understand that generosity exists in this ecosystem of generosity uh, grace and gratitude, all three. So, so you can't just be generous. You can't just soak in grace. And you can't just live a life of gratitude. These always exist together as Paul shows us in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. So we're going to look at these three elements and see how they're interrelated as we uh, collectively respond so that we can see the resistance melt in our own lives and begin to more fully live the life that God has created us to live. And so we're going to begin here by uh, looking at grace. In other words, we begin by receiving the grace of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, this is what we read. Brothers, we want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. In a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy, and even out of deep poverty, they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Okay? And then down in chapter 8, verse 9, what frames all of this is, is this notion of grace. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So, we begin by, in other words, we don't start with generosity, we start with receiving grace. Always have to start with grace. Why is this so significant? Because Paul is unpacking the reality here that generosity begins with having the eyes to see that God is our provider and that God always gives us enough to bless and serve others because that's part of what it means to be an image bearer. If I'm going to look like Jesus, then I'm going to live a life of generosity. Jesus, who was rich, became poor for my sake that I might become rich. I then will be, I'll learn to give. I'll learn to give. But I'll give, the giving will, <clears throat> excuse me, the giving will be a result 
of gratitude that is overflowing because I've seen God's grace. I've seen God's grace in significant ways. So uh, the Galatians, were, they weren't rich. They were poor, but they actually wanted to give anyway because they were bathed in grace. In other words, they had this lens through which they looked at the world that said, look how, look how good God has been to us. Let us help out, right? It's a, great, it's a great attitude. I saw it in Nepal years ago when I was there on a short-term mission trip. We did a medical clinic for four or five days in this village. And uh, the pastor, uh, with a glow in his eyes, he said, we have a big feast planned for all of you. And uh, they slaughtered a yak. And you could, you could see the meat hanging there between two poles for like three days as it was aging to tenderize or whatever has to happen. You'd see the flies, you know, visiting the meat. It was all good. But this, this, was, for, this was for them like a... I mean, it really was. It was a supreme sacrifice of generosity, right? And I'll never forget, we gathered outside, sitting on little benches. There's a little fire in the middle, and we ate, we ate our yak meat and our, and our lentils and dalbot, it's called. And the pastor shared stories of changed lives through this medical clinic. And, and the whole theme of the evening was, look what God has done. Look what God has done. And this is just an opportunity to bless a little bit, but look what God has done. I wish I could live my whole life with that lens. Because when I stop and look at my own life, and if I ask the question, look what God has done, I go, grace, 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 grace. I didn't build anything. I mean, I'm adopted, so grace means that God met my abandonment with a marvelous family. And it's that family that's the reason I'm here this morning. The beauty of grace has invited for me over and over again intimacy. You know I love the outdoors. And when I'm discouraged and I go up to the mountains, I remember over and over again going up to the top of Mount Sauk when we lived east of Mount Vernon up north. Some of you know the area. And I'd sit on a rock and I'd, and I'd read this psalm, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. And I'd think about God's eternality and unchanging character. And I'd, and I'd, and I'd have gone up discouraged and come home encouraged and energized. The grace of God and beauty. Want has been met with provision over and over again. In my own life personally, when I didn't have enough, God provided. And even in this very building in which all of us are gathered right now to the rafters, uh, we needed signatures to build this building. And we got the last signature we needed on the last day we could get a signature late in the afternoon. God providing. Wells for Uganda, God providing. The right staff at the right time, God providing. Sin has been met in my life with forgiveness and deliverance. Not once, over and over again. Confession to my wife, confession to friends, confession to coworkers, confession to Christ. Grace. Confusion met with guidance. Not once, a hundred times. Grace. We sing it, right? All I have needed, thy hand has provided. It's true. So that I still say to people, 
Look, you want to talk apologetics? I'll talk apologetics. We'll talk about the proof of the resurrection. We'll talk about post-modernity. We'll talk about epistemology. We'll talk about logical positivism. I can do that with you. We can talk about linguistics and higher criticism and lower criticism and criticizing the critics. We can talk about all of it. It's no problem. But for me, when the day is done, I still say this, every day is Christmas. And Christ gives me gifts. And when I have eyes to see, I'm grateful. Not that life isn't hard, not that there aren't losses, but that we're bathed in grace. Remember that woman in Luke chapter 7 who bursts into a party that Simon the Pharisee is throwing? this, This religious leader is throwing a party, and he's got all of his friends there, and Jesus is there, and it's kind of the intelligentsia and the, the establishment elite, and this, and this woman busts in, and she begins to weep, and, and the, the tears are falling on Jesus' feet, and then she wipes his feet with her hair, and Simon the Pharisee says, man, if Jesus knew who this was, uh, he, he knows she's a sinner, clearly, because he doesn't say anything, he doesn't know, because he doesn't know he's not a prophet, and Simon has it all figured out right there. And then Jesus turns the tables, and you have to read it yourself, but here's the punchline. Jesus says this to Simon. (laughs) Because she's been forgiven much, what? Does anyone know? She loves much. But if I'm so blind that I can't even see the grace of God all around me, then I love little. It turns out she's the only real worshiper in the room. And so all of us, we come to this moment in our lives, and I come to it often, where I have to ask the question, am I the woman who knows she's a sinner, or am I the Pharisee? <laughs> because the older I get, and, and, and the more knowledge I get of the Bible, the easier it is to become a Pharisee and become blind to the grace of God. Am I still delighted every day that my life is bathed in grace? Am I the younger brother in the, par- uh, the parable of the prodigal son, the one who runs away and comes back and is bathed in grace? Or am I the older brother, obedient, religious, self-righteous, and angry? Who am I? A- a- am I bathed in grace? Am I Jean Valjean or am I Javert? Like, and if you don't know what that means, you are culturally illiterate, all right? <laughs> I mean, the only problem with the Pharisee and the older brother and Javert was their absolute stubborn unwillingness to be bathed in grace. That's it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says this to all of us in the room. It's a rhetorical question. What do you have that you haven't received? What's the answer? (laughs) Nothing. There's not a self-made person in the room. Forgiveness, education, clean water, access to healthcare, family... Do we have hard stories? All of us do. And grace. And for us to become people of generosity, we need to put on the lens and say, I have received. How great is it to receive Christ and then practice seeing and receiving gifts of grace every day. Seeing gifts of grace every day. And when we do this, It engenders this response of generosity. So we begin with receiving grace, but we continue by responding with generosity. And the example of that, of course, is the Macedonians. We've already read it in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 8. In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And I testify, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. And they begged us 
with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, the Galatians, who didn't even have much, said, let us help. We want to help. We want the privilege of participating in the work that God is doing. And so he's appealing to them, and he understands that they want to be generous because of all that they've received. Because though they began in law, they have more recently been bathed in grace. The Macedonians deconstruct the scarcity mentality that we see in the book of Haggai. And they show us that investing in what God is doing in the world is our first calling, not our calling when we have excess. Investing in the work that God is doing in the world is our first calling, not our calling when we have excess. And this is about money, but it's about much more than money. This is about using our gifts to serve and bless other people now rather than waiting until we have bandwidth. Does that, does that make sense? It's very, I mean, it's clear. When you're thirsty, you drink, right? But if all you have is 700 milliliters of water, and many of you are thirsty, then you guard your water, correct? Because you're like this. I only have enough. I'm sorry, you guys. I only have enough for me. And, and, you, and you savor and you sip. <laughs> but what if this were a river? If this were a river, then <laughs> here's the thing. I, oh, I so desperately want to do this right now. <laughs> I could scatter freely, and what would happen? It would be filled up again and again and again. But here's the thing, I will never experience that until I have the faith to what? Scatter. Does this make sense? This is exactly what the Macedonians are demonstrating. They're not waiting until they're out of poverty to give. They're giving even in their poverty. And as I said, this is not just about money. Tolstoy wrote War and Peace, and he had 13 children. Who does that? How did, how did Bach write all his music with 20 children? How did MLK continue to do what he did in spite of jail time and death threats? We set off on a path, all of us do. And whether it's exercise or a spiritual discipline or generosity or investing our time, we set off and then inevitably there's a setback and often when there's a setback, what happens is we get discouraged and we quit. And what God is saying to us here is no. If God has called you, continue on, right? Not when you feel like you have enough. Continue on because by continuing on, you receive enough. God continues to fill our cup, but only as we pour our cup out. So this is the example of the Macedonians. And this frees us, all of us, to start living now, right? Not tomorrow, but now. Living generously now with our time, with our emotional energy, and with our financial resources. So that's the example. And then he moves from the example to an exhortation directly pointed to the Corinthians. Look what he says in chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge... 
also see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving the earnestness of other, to, to others, uh, the sincerity of your love also. In other words, as you Corinthians are abounding in everything, you're, there's faith and, there, and you have good words and you're studying also abound in the discipline of generosity, right? And then in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, he says it this way, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, we pray, we listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we step into the story of hope that God is writing in the world using our gifts of time and money and, and emotional energy to be people of hope in the world. We don't wait until we have enough. We wait until we hear the voice and then we go. Because if we wait until we have enough, we will wait forever. (laughs) All of us will. He tells us that if we allow fear or greed to shrink our lives, here's what will happen. Our lives will shrink. And we'll be fear-based and we'll build walls around our resources. And whether it's time or money or emotional energy... Those walls will prevent us from living the life that God has called us to live. Better to wake up every morning and ask this one simple question. What does God want me to give today? Every day. How does God want me to bless another rather than how can I preserve what I have? Does this make sense? Eddie Hellison wrote a book entitled An Interrupted Life. It's the diary of a Jewish woman in Amsterdam Uh, begun in, I believe, the late 1930s and ending with her death in the camps. And one of her last entries, this is what she writes, it's so powerful because it talks about how how when, when life gets hard, it's easy to stop serving, stop loving, stop giving, and just, and only care about protecting ourselves. This is what she writes. There are, it is true, some who even at this late stage are putting their vacuum cleaners and silver forks and spoons in safekeeping, instead of guarding their relationship with you, dear God. Subtext, you can't do both. And there are those who want to put their bodies in safekeeping too. But by putting their bodies in safekeeping, they have become nothing more than a shelter for a thousand fears and bitter feelings. And they say, I will never let them get me into their clutches, but they forget that no one can ever be in their clutches who is in your arms, O God. I love that. No one can ever be in the clutches of a greedy, consumptive world who is in the arms of God. And if I'm in the arms of God, I'm empowered to live generously with my time and money and emotional energy in every situation. There's a power there. Small living is rooted in fear and scarcity. But the life to which we're invited is a life not of fear, but of hope. Not of scarcity but of generosity. That's why if you're kind of new at Bethany and you come around here a little bit, we've had these meals for people who are new and looking to get plugged in. There's this kind of mantra that we say, we think everyone who calls Bethany home should practice learning, serving, and giving. This is learning. And there's other ways to learn in Bible studies. Serving and giving. This is how we melt the resistance that takes hold in all of our lives. And then here's the experience. So uh, Paul gives this uh, example, this exhortation, and there's an experience regarding giving. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 8. 
He says there, at this present time, your abundance is a supply for their need so that their abundance will also become a supply for your need someday in the future, that there may be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little had no lack. In other words, this is completely counterintuitive, but what Paul is saying here is that at this moment, you Corinthians have excess, and God will use that excess to meet the needs of Jerusalem, and the day will come when you have a need, and what will happen is in God's economy, another will meet that need, and that will become a testimony of love and interdependency rather than greed and individualism. And don't we need that in our culture, right? And so th- this, is, this is the life to which we're called, and it's supremely challenging, but we do have a great example of it that all of us have experienced. We just need to practice it and expand the example. And the example, of course, is parenting, right? There's a moment in all of our lives when we have nothing to give, and it's the moment that we're born, right? And all we do for quite a while, actually, is receive, I'd kind of forgotten about this because I have grown children, but now uh, my granddaughter is living with us this year while my daughter and her husband are home as missionaries on sabbatical. And so I have this brand new baby that was born in November, and you can't believe how little they contribute to the economic well-being of the household. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing there. Like the only thing that they give me, the only thing she gives me is a smile every once in a while. That's all I get from her, right? She doesn't cook, she doesn't clean, she doesn't even roll over, right? <laughs> so, so like it's 100% need, compassion, generosity, true? And then here's what will happen, I know it because my mom just died last year. The one who gave me everything when I was young will herself have needs, right? And then what will happen at that moment? I'll count it a privilege to invest in her because she invested in me. Now, here's the thing. Paul is asking us to take that and and, and radically expand it so that we say, oh, here's a need, I'll give. Not not wondering if that particular person will pay me back, but believing that my needs will be met because all that I need, God has provided. So if there's a need, I give. There's a need. One-time offering. We're talking about it right now. One time. And uh, we don't talk about this often. But there's a need. And it's not uh, for those who have children only. My children are grown and gone. Uh, And it's not for those who invested in community meals only. It's for all of us. Because we invest, not for a return on our investment, but because we believe that the return on our investment will be that God fills our cup, and by God filling our cup, we know God better. And that's why we give. So this is what he says. The day will come when you will see God provide for you even as God is using you now to provide for another. That's the way, that's the way that it works. And then here's the, here's the punchline of all of this. We, we arrive in this state of authentic gratitude, chapter 9, verses 8 through 11 or so. And down in verse 11, this is what he says. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality 
which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And this ministry of service not only fully supplies the needs, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. And then the word thanks one more time in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, the grace that enables all of this. So we arrive here in this authentic state of gratitude. There's grace. Grace engenders a response of generosity, and generosity actually, again counterintuitively, engenders a response of gratitude. And this is where we see people who experience the provision of God in ways that they never would have had they lived carefully. They come to know God now in a way that God can only be known by experience. In other words, uh, one of God's names is Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. Does this, you know this name in the Bible? God our provider. And so God wants to be known as provider, but the word known here is critical because the word known uh, is, is a known by experience. In other words, if you want to know God as provider, the only way that you can know God as provider, checking the lid, <laughs> is to pour it out and watch God fill. Does that make sense? Give and watch God give. Give and watch God give. And then you begin to see it. All I have needed, God has provided. God has provided emotional energy. God has provided time. God has provided financial resources. I didn't think I could do it. I did it. God provided. I've seen it over and over and over again in my personal life. I didn't think I had the energy at a moment to be with and serve my kids. I went. I served. I was energized by it. I didn't think I had the moment to get up and preach. I got up and preached. God gave me the strength to preach. I didn't think I had what it took to do what I was called to do. I, I went anyway, and God provided. I've seen it so many times. I don't want you to miss it. Because the only way that you can know God experientially as provider is by experiencing generosity in your own life and practicing generosity so that you come to know God in this way. Uh, when I proposed to my wife, I, I wanted to ask my wife's dad, but he didn't live, he wasn't local, so didn't know how to help him get to know me, so I sent him my resume. Because <laughs> I was applying for work at the same time. He said to me, this is good, and uh, yes, you can marry my daughter. And he says, it's more important that I get to know you. Because I can't know you from a piece of paper. And you can't know God as provider of time, of energy, of, of financial resources, unless you're investing in the story of hope that God wants to write through you. And there are times when you don't feel like you can do it, and you get up and you do it anyway, and God provides. I was so convicted by reading, by rereading The War of Art that yesterday I got up and after drinking my coffee, I sat down at the desk and I said, I am not getting up until I write a thousand words. 3,000 words later, I'm still going. Do you see what God wants us to do? He wants us to step into the story. Whether we feel like it or not, whether we're energized or not, whether we're inspired or not, this is faith. And I don't want you to miss it. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much that we can gather 
at this moment in Bethany's history. 100 years old, and now an opportunity to be people of hope for the next generation. Would you speak to us now, Father? Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We pray in Christ's name.